welcome to the Creative South Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. Today, I talk with Andy Vitale, a UX design principal for 3M's healthcare division. Andy and I start off talking about his winding career path, from a professional wrestler after dropping out of college, to his time working for the tabloids after 9-11, when his office building was exposed to anthrax, to his current role with 3M. Then we move into how building empathy leads to better design outcomes, bringing your own seat to the table, and more. All right after this. Jack Prince is one of our favorite companies to work with. They offer great products at even better prices, with some of the best customer service I've ever seen. Why not pick Jack Prince next time you need t-shirts, business cards, stickers, or flyers printed? Right now, Jack Prince is offering four-day turnaround on their most popular apparel products. That's four days with no rush fees, no hassle, and no BS. With apparel from popular brands like American Apparel, Next Level, Jildon, All Style, and more starting as low as $3.99 each. Now is the time to take advantage of this great offer. Visit jack.inc slash four days to order your apparel today. Plus, Jack Prince is giving Creative South podcast listeners 20% off all orders over $25 when you use promo code CREATESOUTH17 at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. We've gone through and streamlined the Creative South podcast Patreon page, cleaning out the excess and making it easier for you to support us. With options starting at just $1 per month, you can help support the podcast and even wind up with some cool Creative South podcast swag. Every dollar helps cover hosting costs, upgrade equipment, and keep the podcast going. When you become a Creative South patron, you'll get access to exciting Creative South news before anyone else, Creative South podcast stickers and t-shirts. So please help support the podcast and become a patron over at patreon.com slash creative south. for joining me this morning yeah no problem man thanks for having me so yeah i normally start things off with where'd you grow up grew up in brooklyn new york um born in new york lived in new york for the first 20 years of my life um new york was a great place to grow up at the time it was very diverse i met a lot of people made a lot of friends got an interesting perspective on things which has really helped me carry through as a designer sure uh I didn't end up doing anything with design in New York. Um, <laughs> I actually ended up dropping out of college my first try and uh, went to school to become a professional wrestler. So that was oh, like we're gonna my have New York experience. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so when you were growing up, were you into what were you into? Obviously, wrestling. Uh, yeah, I was a huge wrestling fan. Even more so than that, I was a baseball player. I played in the travel league. I traveled mm-hmm. all the way through. Um, played in in college, uh, not college, high school. Mm-hmm. And um, after high school was over, I uh, just went into wrestling, actually. So so how did you make that transition? How did you go from, you know, going to school, playing baseball? You, you said you started college, starting college. And then how, how does wrestling figure into that? Yeah, so I was... I hosted a college radio show at WBCR, Brooklyn College Radio, mm-hmm. and um, I had different guests. I had Typo Negative because they were local boys, the band. Um, they Might Be Giants. I love They had, Might Be Giants. Yeah, one of they lived in Brooklyn, so I had one of them come into the studio, 
And then after that, um, I had a guest that was a professional wrestler and, and I was a huge fan of wrestling. So mm-hmm. I, I became friends with this wrestler, Chris Michaels. Uh, he wrestled for the old ECW back when it was Eastern Championship Wrestling, not <laughs> extreme. But um, he, we just became friends and I had a buddy that I grew up with that was dropped out, never went to college, dropped out of high school, mm-hmm. living in his parents' basement. And he's like, dude, like we can really fulfill our dream of becoming pro wrestlers. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't really want to do that. Like this college thing is going okay. Like let's, let me get this TV radio degree. I could probably put some use to it. And he's like, but man, like imagine if we can make a living doing this, we've always dreamed of it. So <laughs> He's like, I, I've got to figure out how to get into it. So I asked my friend Chris Michaels if he would train my, my buddy Rob. Mm-hmm. And he, Chris Michaels was like, absolutely not. I will not train him. But since we're friends, I will train you. And he could come along with it if you guys are interested. So my <laughs> friend is like, come on, man, please. Like, this is our dream. Like, we have one shot at it. Let's let's go for it. So he convinced me to do that. And at the time I was really like so focused on the radio show that I had forgotten that I had to actually go to class anyway. I hung around the radio station so much. So we ended up starting out training in the ring of another school that we didn't pay to go to. So while that school (laughs) was out of session, we kind of paid the person that kept the ring there to let us in and train. Mm -hmm. And we, we got trained pretty much just enough to make this guy look good or other people look good when they beat us up in real quick matches. Ah. So we, we spent a few months traveling around training in different gyms with this one, Chris Michaels. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you know, he's like, Hey, I can get you on some shows because I need a ride or they need help setting up the ring or setting up the building. So you, you travel around and you help them set things up. And then once in a while they'll throw you a bone. Hey, we've got a battle Royal, put this mask on and you could go in there and get eliminated (laughs) in like two minutes. So, but throughout that time we built relationships with different promoters and different wrestlers. And before the shows, they'd kind of work with us, show us a few more things. Usually it was if we were going to wrestle them that night so that we could make them look really good, they'll show us how to take their move properly. Sure. So that, I mean, wrestling was good. I ended up deciding to move to South Florida. My parents had already moved there Mm -hmm. and, um, there's no state tax. So I'm like, all right, I'll continue on this crazy dream of, of trying to make it as a wrestler. Moved to Florida, met my wife. She was involved in wrestling at the time too. She had a ring in her backyard for one of the promotions (laughs) that she worked with. So that was kind of cool. But after a while, I was like, you know what? I'm not really good at this or I'm never going to get much better than this because I didn't really learn it properly. Sure. And I suffered a few injuries here and there. And I'm like, it's time to to go back to school. And at that time, my chances or the opportunities were, I know something in computers I wanted to do. I wasn't sure what. Mm -hmm. The school I decided to go to offered either a degree in graphic design or a degree in networking technology. Uh I was like, well, I'm kind of creative. I've got this wrestling thing going. Let me me try design. And that was kind of what took me into the design world, which was (laughs) pretty interesting so so you you stay in south florida at that point what do you what do you do um when well when you're studying when you get back in school and you're and you're doing graphic design were you focusing on anything in particular or were you just kind of doing general graphic design studies there was general graphic design it was in 2000 so the web was starting to really become popular sure but print was still a heavy focus in south florida a lot of the warehouse district in miami had print shops so the school i went to wasn't necessarily a design school mm-hmm. but it was a school that had a design program sure so we 
learned some of the design theories from one of our really good teachers, John Hernandez, who I'm still friends with. The other teachers were very, very heavy into teaching us the applications. That that so, was my experience in college is that the teachers taught me the programs and the fundamentals, but right. harnessing creativity was not a uh, strong point on the teaching the horizon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I... I remember, and the classes were Monday through Friday from 8 to 1, Ooh. and you'd take four weeks of one program, and then you'd move on to the next. So sure. I took two classes for Photoshop, two for Illustrator. We did Quark. We did, um, I guess it was Quark twice because InDesign wasn't out yet. No, yeah. Then we did um, Premiere, mm-hmm. Cinema 4D XL. Oh, wow. And then uh, there was probably one or two other programs applications at the time oh yeah flash and dreamweaver nice we we got a good mix of work but really the only way people would excel at that school is if they went above and beyond and really wanted to stay in the lab and learn and Mm -hmm. kind of keep up on trends so i actually ended up getting a job while i was still in school which they let me leave a little bit early every day because i took a job kind of like an internship but it was paid for this uh, big conference called the Winter Music Conference, and they've been around forever. It's mm. like an EDM con- concert or something. So I ended up working with them for a little while through school, and then after school I got a job doing print ads for a company called Brandsmart USA, which is like a, a smaller version of Best Buy. Sure. Yeah, I, and, I've heard of them. <laughs> okay, nice. Yeah, that was, that was an interesting job because I had a, a boss that really taught me early on, like, how to handle pressure because Mm -hmm. he would throw a vendor out at like four o'clock on a Friday and our ad would be due at like five o'clock so that we could leave. And he'd just stand over your shoulder and (laughs) yell at you like, I want every Sony ad out of here. You've got one hour and just like stand over your shoulder. And it was kind of, you know, in the beginning it was a little like, Oh, this is kind of uncomfortable and crazy. But after a while you just learn to not let it bother you. And I'm really thankful for that opportunity early on in my career. (laughs) Probably weren't that thankful at the time though. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, so what, what do you end up doing when you get out of school? Do you keep uh, working for brand smart or, 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 or what are you doing? So my brand smart pay was so low. Um, I, I think that the people in the stores today probably make more money than the designers were making on that team back then. I I'm think sure that's it's probably changed. still the case for a lot of retail stuff. <laughs> it, it could be. So uh, I ended up leaving there and taking a job with Renaissance Cruises, which at the time was the fifth largest cruise line in the world. Okay. And that's kind of like, I was like, it's a huge, like triple the salary. So I was like, this sure. is awesome. So I got hired to work on like these newspaper campaigns and a lot of direct mail. So still a lot of print work. They ended up hiring an advertising agency in New York Mm -hmm. about seven months in and firing the whole department. We kind of knew for like a month that we were going to get let go. So we spent about a month looking for jobs. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going from that job to working as a temporary worker, freelance contract, whatever they call it now. Back then it was, there were three main companies in South Florida. There were Aquint, the creative group, Mm -hmm. and iCreatives. They're all still around today. That opportunity was great because it really just drops you and puts you into an office when somebody's out for a week sure. or if there's a long-term assignment and you really get to get a lot of like experience in a, in a quick way. So I ended up doing that for a while. Um, I ended up working for them for about four years oh, primarily wow. through them. 
But um, one of our jobs was for the tabloids. So I worked for a company that was responsible for every single one of the tabloids, and I was responsible for the final output. So, so by tabloids, would, you mean like the Inquirer, the Inquirer, uh, the, the Sun, Star, Star, Sun, Weekly yeah. World News, the Examiner. I was in the Weekly World News once. We got paid like twenty-five dollars to let them use our image as something. They converted me into a, a bouncer that was the president of the Liberace fan club, and we were mourning the anniversary of his death. Oh, well, congratulations th- on being the president of the uh, Liberace yeah. fan club. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. So that that was a really interesting job. I got to see a lot of really odd things with Weekly World News, I would say, because of like <laughs> Bat Boy and all the crazy stories that they had. And if people aren't familiar with them, I, I think there's got to be a site that's dedicated to some of their crazy stories. But you probably find them all on FARC. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I ended up working there until we had an anthrax attack on the building. So say if what? You fast, so <laughs> crazy. Another crazy story. If you fast forward to nine eleven, I remember that I was home and I got a call to come in because they wanted to put out a special edition for nine eleven to commemorate the disaster, the tragedy that was nine eleven. So this is the type of company that we had on deck. This magazine dedicated to president reagan who was alive at the time Mm -hmm. but we were just waiting till he died we'd had this article so that this dedicated issue that it could go live like the day after he dies so they were like we've got to put out this special edition 9-11 magazine so we went into the office and just i remember seeing these photos that are stuck in my head that that we did publish which is really sad of people that were like they had no choice but to jump out of the building. Mm-hmm. And the, these images were coming from, um, I guess, from our England, the team that we had in England, or just as a tabloid, we had access to a lot of photos that a lot of them, believe it or not, we didn't publish. But I remember seeing that, and I was like, this this just doesn't feel right. And then after that, we went on this full, like, bat boy on the Weekly World News is going after bin Laden. And mm-hmm. we ended up angering somebody or I, I don't know what we did, but we ended up getting a anthrax mailed to us that our one of our photo editors opened up. It was a picture of JLo, if I remember the details correctly, and there was a substance in there. And um this didn't come out till after the fact that we got this package. But he ended up eventually dying. And oh, I remember geez. that we originally heard that he had contracted anthrax from a trip to North Carolina in a stream that he had swam in. Mm -hmm. And it didn't seem right, especially if you fast forward a couple of days after that and there are people in hazmat suits walking around the building. Sure. But I remember after that had happened, my dad had called me and said, hey, you know, your company is on the news. You have to go to the health department. They found the anthrax in the building. And I'm like, "Uh, I don't even know what that means, but I'm going to run down to the health department. So so your dad was telling you before the company was telling? Before the company told me, yes. Wow. You know, Uh, tabloids are just giving themselves a worse name, aren't they? Oh, I know. I mean, it might have been that we were contracted and not actually worked for the tabloids, or there might have been a mix-up in communication, but I know that I didn't get contacted. Sure. And... When I went down to the health department, they had us sign all this paperwork. Hey, we're going to treat you. We don't know what it's going to take, but hey, we're you're not going to hold us liable for anything, and we're going to make sure that you see it through. Mm-hmm. So that seemed okay. They gave us a test, and then they rounded us up, and they put us in this basement or a conference room at a hotel. So I guess it was a 
little like ballroom. Sure. And it was the FBI, the CDC, the Florida Department of Health. And they basically told us, hey, like we honestly don't know what's going to happen to you guys. Like there was an outbreak in the 60s. Uh, It was, I mean, that had to have been one of the worst times of my life. And they were like, hey, you know what? There's in, in Russia, the outbreak lasted 58 days. We treated them with this medication. So we're going to give you 60 days supply and we're just going to retest. So every week we'd go in on a Wednesday. They'd do a nasal swab. They'd check us. We'd get a call on Thursday. Hey, you're good. You're clear. That sometime that Thursday, you'd hear that like breaking news on the TV. Another one of your coworkers is hospitalized. Just mm-hmm. something going on. That Friday, the phone call rings again. And hey, the tests were inconclusive. We're going to have to do it again. And then after the 60 days, they ended up offering us uh, a vaccine for it, which I don't think a lot of people sign up for. I know I didn't, but um, it was it was a scary 60 days. Yeah, I can imagine. Really didn't know what was going to happen. So around that time, I ended up going into teaching. So I went back to the school Mm -hmm. that I went to and I said, hey, do you guys have any any opening any positions that are available and they're like yeah we've got one in port st Lucie, which was like an hour and a half from me and i'm like you know what i'll take it sure so not even thinking what i signed up for i signed up to teach morning and night classes oh jeez! so So you're stuck there all day all day yeah eight in the morning is the first class so i had to leave my house at like six to get there in case there was traffic that class ended at one and then the night class started at six and that would be over at ten so for like as long as I could handle it, I was out of my house from pretty much 5.30 in the morning till midnight every day. God bless. Did, you, did your wife see you at all? Was she like awake at all to see you? <laughs> she she was. I mean, she understood and it was a good opportunity at the time because that was able to open up the door of a local campus had opened up mm-hmm. and then they decided to offer design at that campus. So I ended up teaching there, becoming the department chair and helping them transition from it wasn't actually the college that I went to. It was a career college version of theirs. Sure. We saw through the transition of a career college to a college to an accredited university. So that was really interesting opportunity for me at the time and really great experience of like teaching day and night classes are so different with designers. So our day mm-hmm. classes were full of students that were coming out of high school. Our night students were professionals that were looking to change their career. So it was a very interesting mix. And at the same time, like, it really made me brush up on my design skills Mm -hmm. because you have to be able to teach it right? and then be able to go on and just keep learning so that you can improve the curriculum and and how the students learn and what you teach them. So I did that for, for another long period of time, I would say almost four years. Mm -hmm. I don't, it's kind of blurry now at this point, but um, it was, Looking back, like I really enjoyed my time teaching and I enjoyed teaching and I still teach today and Mm -hmm. I I try to mentor people as much as I can. Gotcha. So you, you get done teaching, um, at, at, at this school, where, where do you move next? So I ended up teaching. So the reason I left teaching is because the way the school was set up is we had like one week off at the end of every semester. So it wasn't like summers off, like sure, you, all, you get all a the break teacher and, friends that yeah. I had. Yeah. So I was like, hey, you know what? Maybe maybe I should go teach at a different school and, and teach for the school board. So I ended up jumping into the school board for a little bit 
to um, try to teach computers to K through five. Oh, wow. And it was such a weird experience for me because it seemed, I, the school I taught at was a very poor district mm-hmm. and it seemed like they just wanted the students to be babysat and just sure. let them play on the computer as opposed to teaching them. But I ended up, it, it just, it wasn't right for me. So as soon as there was a little break, cause I got hired kind of late in the year for that, I would go ahead and leave. Um, I think after teaching, I ended up taking a job back to print, actually, doing pre-press for a print shop, a mm-hmm. high-volume print shop. And what I was able to do there, all along this time, I was touching some digital work at the same time for the places I worked. It wasn't strictly print, and I was also doing a lot of freelancing and digital. So I was sure. very very up on like what was happening with the web, and I had even worked on like interactive CDs and things like that. So... I mean, it wasn't like I made this huge transition, like a jump from physical to digital or print to digital. But um, when I was working at the print shop, I really did jump into like, hey, let's create this extra revenue stream. Like Mm -hmm. these people are coming to you to print flyers, brochures, envelopes, invoices. Like, why don't we offer them websites as a service and e-commerce sites? So I ended up taking over or creating that kind of small division within this print shop. And mm-hmm. it, it was starting to, to go really well and they were hiring more people in that team. And it was around that time that I was like, you know what? The jobs in Florida are not super great. I've got friends in healthcare. I remember what happened when, um, when I had that problem with the, the anthrax situation and the communication was really poor. Like what can I do to go into healthcare and, and try to do something? So I was working at the print shop. I was going to school for pre-nursing at Broward Community College. I'm <laughs> wow, like, pre-nursing. Healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> so it was all the science courses that I didn't take because I had a design degree. Sure. So before you could go into nursing school and, and you know, you learn like all the CPR certifications that you need to get. And it was really eye-opening with like what was going on in healthcare and the opportunities there are to improve healthcare. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I ended up, Meeting so one of my friends Willie who spoke at Creative South this year Willie oh, Morris yeah, from yeah. Faithbox, so Willie was running a co-working space called the White Table Foundation um, on the water in Fort Lauderdale at the time, and I had met Willie through like Twitter and and through the another mutual friend Craig Agronoff who has um, pizza tweet ups. So he used <laughs> to work with companies like Chevy. They Chevy would give him cars to. And people would drive around to pizza places and eat free pizza and tweet about Chevy, tweet about pizza. So I met Willie through that. And Willie was working with two other people at the co-working space. Mm-hmm. And they were thinking about starting an agency. So Willie's like, hey, man, you know, you've got a lot of experience, and some, especially on the print side. And you have connections to a printer in case we want to offer that service. Sure. But we really want to go digital. Like, why don't you come in on it with us? And I was like all right, you know, let, let's give it a shot. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> so I ended up leaving the print shop, working with Willie and Brian and, and Josh Guffey. And we started the pancake movement, which was our agency. And that just the passion that those guys had were so contagious and so infectious that I decided at that point that like I love design again and I don't want to leave the design industry. Maybe I can leverage that to to improve healthcare somehow, which sure. is eventually, you know, the thought that landed me at 3M, but I um 
it just, that was such a great experience to see the hunger that these guys had. They were all a little bit younger than me. And mm -hmm. like, it was just, we were creating a lot of great work. Like one of our first clients was Blackberry, right? We helped nice. them do some work in, in Latin America. And from there, it just kind of steamrolled into a couple of other projects. We hooked up with a local incubator. Mm -hmm. So a lot of their startups, they kicked us to get them off the ground. You know, here's, we've got some app ideas. Can, can you help us see it to fruition? So that was really great experience. Um, two of our partners ended up leaving and moving. Um, and then Willie and I kept the company going. We, um, had to hire a lot of kind of external sure. people to work with us, some contractors, because we didn't have full capabilities and we didn't really want to keep the overhead of having full-time employees all the time. Mm -hmm. We ended up having some, which is another like deep troubling responsibility as a business owner to like, that'll keep you up at night. Like, Hey, I've got to make sure that these people are fed even before I'm fed myself. Right. Or so there had been times that we had to not take a paycheck to make sure the rest of the team had gotten paid. But overall it all really worked out. Um, Willie ended up going to Boeing in Seattle oh, at wow. the time. And I ended up sticking around and, and finishing up with Willie remotely a lot of the work that we mm -hmm. had on the table. And then we um, worked out a deal with some of the other agencies that we had been working with mm -hmm. to transition off the client work to them. So at that point, I ended up transitioning my role to going to UX. Um, as, well, I was, Willie and I were both doing UX at the Pancake Movement, mm -hmm. aside from some other things. But um, when it was time for me to get another job. I ended up going to Office Depot at the time <laughs> and I ended up kind of leading their mobile efforts at Office Depot. Sure. And this was a really a great time to be at Office Depot because everything was so new to like apps and we had a, a mobile site, we had a native Android site, we had a native iOS, not site, we had a native Android and iOS app. And then we also had like a sales circular iPad app and a windows mm -hmm. app, the windows app and the iPad app ended up going away. But this was the time where like it was called passbook at the time. Now Apple wallet was yeah, coming out. Yeah. So we were one of the first companies that Apple promoted that you can use in store with us, um, for coupons. We did PayPal integration, Google wallet for payment, Gigia for social login. We were one of the first companies to really focus on having an express checkout and mm -hmm. express registration and guest user flows. So it was a really exciting time to be at Office Depot. And, and we really, I think we ended up improving through a lot of like feature changes and A-B testing the conversion rate by like 600%. I mean, we did a lot of cutting edge things at that time. We worked on an in-store augmented reality app with the band One Direction. So you could walk <laughs> up to, to like these folders in the store and, and hold your phone up to it. And all of a sudden, like the band comes to life or one of them is being interviewed on your phone right in front of you. So it was, it was kind of cool. Um, that was a really good job. And it was really eye-opening for me to be thrown back into like a large corporation. Sure. So coming from like working for myself or running a design department, it was very much like, hey, you know, I've got this air of maybe arrogance or th I think that I ha know everything there is to know. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate enough to have a product owner that was really good at helping me transition into corporate. So 
like she would work with me and say, no, you know what? You can't really respond to people this way. You've got to change your perspective on things and, and really help me like soften myself up for corporate America and not sure. be so like direct and act like I know everything. So I'm, I'm very thankful to Sherry from Office Depot for that. Um, <laughs> and I probably would still be at Office Depot except for the fact that my wife has, she was working as a property manager at the time uh-huh. on a high rise in South Florida and there was a marble floor that was wet and you can't really see it. Nobody left a sign. So she slipped oh, and fell. No. And the way she fell, she broke her foot clean in half Ooh. Um, and had to have two surgeries in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, one where they put a lot of hardware in and one where they took it out through workers comp trying to get her to go back to work pretty quick. Sure. Um, it ended up not healing properly. She didn't have full mobility. So we did some research and we found that the top doctor for that type of injury, which is a Lisfranc fracture, it's a very common in the NFL, mm-hmm. is this doctor that's the doctor for the Carolina Panthers in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. So 10 months into Office Depot, I'm like, you know what? I've got to go. Like my wife needs to go and have surgery and see this doctor and I'm going to figure out a way to get us there. So I ended up working for a company called Belk in Yeah, North the Carolina. retailer. The retailer, yep. Yeah. So Belk was family owned up until a few years ago. I was hired to work on a replatform project for them. So they were going to switch their existing backend to a backend system called Hybris. Mm-hmm. And... I started there in August and we started to really work on like wireframing replatform and figuring out what that could be. At the same time, from my mobile experience, I was working on a lot of like, how do we implement coupons better on mobile? How do we change the checkout flow on mobile? So Mm -hmm. a lot of mobile things. But we eventually went down on Black Friday that year, completely down, like site down, millions of dollars lost, people freaking out like like the world was on fire. Oh, and, yeah, that's their biggest sh- retail day of the year. So, yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I it was kind of like I that when we went back in that Monday, it was such a interesting weird dynamic in the building. They ended up canceling the replatform project that I was hired for. Oh, no. And decided that they wouldn't be able to have the site done by the following Black Friday. So they were going to reinvest all of that money into fixing the existing infrastructure. So basically, my project got put on hold. And actually, just like this week, they launched their new .com on that new platform. I don't know the platform because a lot of decisions have been made since I left. But sure. I was so excited to see that a lot of the work that I had done, like my header and footer that I created while I was there, was still in the new <laughs> version, which is kind of cool. And that was another project that, you know, if we want to really just quickly dive into a project, I was just revisiting this because I saw the new site go live. Sure. One of the projects that we worked on at Belk, and I just revisited that because I was, when the new site went live, I just went through my old files to see how much of my work still carried over. Um, Sure. We worked on changing the header and footer. So at the time, they wanted to attract more high-end companies to sell their products in stores and online. So Mm -hmm. what we did is decided that instead of focusing on the header and footer, which had a lot of colors in it, we wanted to focus on the content. So how can we focus on what's between the header and footer, right? And how many redundancies are there in the header and footer? So let's understand where customers go. But when you start to get into like working on the homepage and having to deal with the buyers, the merchants, the content strategists, it's like any little change required like so many 
discussions and meetings and nobody wants to give up this valuable real estate. So apparently I think that the decision that we made with the header and footer was so good and worked out so well for them. I want to say that I can contribute it to something like a 42.4% increase in overall sales and a 20% increase in like the, the hero image. (laughs) There's, there's data behind a lot of it. So I'm sure sure it continued to perform well that they kept it going. So Belk was, was good. I mean, we did a lot of cool mobile things and I ended up just because I, the project I got hired for got canceled. I was super bummed about that. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I can see that when my relocation time is up, I just can't sit here and, and continue to wireframe this site. That's got no like definite date on the roadmap and what's going to mm-hmm. change between now and then. And it's going to have to be reworked so many times. So I decided to start looking and my manager at the time was very supportive and she kind of knew that, Hey, I know you're going to leave. Like, I want you to still do your work here, but you know, figure it out. Don't just take the first opportunity that comes to you. Like really like sure. make it work for you. So I interviewed a few places, um, ended up coming to St. Paul, Minnesota to interview at 3M. And mm-hmm. I spoke to like five or six people that day. And my boss is um, the, she holds the most patents for a woman in Motorola history. She's designed like all of the phones from the StarTech to the Razor through like the Google acquisition. So I'm like, wow, that's an awesome person to learn from. And then mm-hmm. our chief design officer, and I was like, wait a minute, this company has a chief design officer. Like, how cool <laughs> is that? You know, Eric is telling me, you know, 3M is really investing in design. This is like the ground floor. You could really come in and make a huge difference. And in healthcare, you know, the impact is even exponential to that. He's like, we're going to do some really cool things here. Like, you should really come on board. And the people I spoke to, it, it was this like empowerment and this like drive to really like change design at this company that's a hundred over a hundred years old with this history tradition of innovation through like engineering and like the lab and not through design. So now sure. This, well, they started off as a mining company. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I, I've still never been to the original office, but I think that they still have that building in two harbors, Minnesota. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. So just this opportunity to like really come in and, and be on this team that's has this goal to really like, drive through design and the organizational support to do that. I was like, this is the right opportunity for me. So I came here and I've been here ever since. Gotcha. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So your role there, what, what exactly is it that you do there? You're, you're a UX lead. So yes. So I am a user experience design principal now on the healthcare mm-hmm. team and I'm responsible for a small team that focuses on our enterprise software solutions. So sure. if you really, if we take a step back and look at 3M, my, when I first started, my title was senior interaction designer. Then I transitioned through mm. lead interaction designer. So what that meant is I was leading the interaction design function across all of healthcare. So if we look at 3M's mm. healthcare business group, there are six divisions. There's food safety, drug delivery systems, Mm -hmm. oral care solutions, infection prevention, critical and chronic care, and our health information systems. So if you think about their customers, from food safety, we do a lot of food diagnostics, to drug delivery system, a lot of like inhalers and transdermal patches and micro needles. Mm -hmm. 
and oral care is dental and orthodontic, you're really touching like your user is almost everybody in the world. It really is everybody in the world. Everybody eats food and we have a diagnostic test for sure. it. So our team was small. I was the second hire on the team. So we would have to take these projects and really like show the impact of design and, and UX to continue to grow the team. With every big win that we had, we added another one or two people to the team. The team is now 15 from two, which is amazing. So sometime wow. around October, the decision was made that our health information systems, which has hundreds of developers and they're not located in St. Paul, they were a series of acquisitions. Their main campus mm. for that team is in Salt Lake City. They, they need okay. a designated like UX design team. So I transitioned over to only focus on their work, team of one, um, 75% <laughs> travel at the time. Now it's now it's down oh. to about sixty percent. Uh, team of one showing the impact, just working with the team, building relationships, helping solve problems not only of the business but mainly the user. Our team has grown mm -hmm. now from one to four, and we anticipate double digits sometime by the end of this year, or early next year. Oh wow! So so in your role there, you know. How are you able to apply all of the th – because you've had a really varied right. career, um, you know, from professional wrestler, which I don't imagine translates into – It does. It, it, it does. It, I let, let me jump into that real quick. So, so sure. I had a role as professional wrestler, but then I stayed close to uh, wrestling and ended up doing a lot of like behind the scenes, creating storylines, promoting shows, um, mm -hmm. just – utilizing my video editing background to edit video for some TV shows that we had. But anyway, so as a wrestler, your goal is to go out there with some sort of idea of what you're going to do. So you've got this strategy, but, but sure. based on the reaction of the people, that strategy changes and you've got to adapt on the fly to be like, Hey, wait a minute, that didn't work. Like how do we change this? So I think that understanding how people react and being able to mm -hmm. like, change that and try to focus on that reaction and influence it a little bit that helps through design. But at the same time, the behind the scenes work, the creating the storylines was definitely helpful to design because as designers, we're storytellers. It's our goal to take the business understanding and requirements and create a story that makes sense to the user and gets the users excited and wants them to be a part of it and use our software and enjoy using our software. So in wrestling, sure. when you're figuring out, Hey, in 12 months, I want to sell this crowd out by having these two guys wrestle each other. You've got to figure out all of the steps to get to that point. So you see the end goal, mm -hmm. but you have to figure out in wrestling, they call them angles. You've got to figure out the angle of how to get the crowd to really want to see these two guys wrestle or they want to really hate one guy so much that they want to see this other guy come in and, and beat them. So that mm -hmm. kind of being able to develop long-term storylines really helps with design, with storytelling, because you get to kind of see the end goal and reverse engineer it so that it makes sense and be able to adjust to any pivot that happens. Okay. I can see that. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So go, going through that, you know, I, I see how now I can see how um, wrestling can tie in, you know, you know, building from print design to doing web design before it was called right. UX and UI. Um, you know, what, what have you kind of learned along the way that has helped um, 
helped you most? Probably that even our paying clients at the time or my bosses were not really the end user. So it was really important early on to understand that, especially in e-commerce, a lot of the decisions are made because somebody high ups, their children have noticed something on the website or pointed out something that they've seen somewhere and they want to implement it. So it was understanding Mm. really early on that the user and solving the user's problem is the key piece to that puzzle. Because even if the business wants to go a certain way, if the users don't react to it the way that they want, if the users aren't exciting if it doesn't solve their problems they're going to end up not using it and as information Mm -hmm. has changed and the ease of getting information has changed to where people just have all of this information on their phone and they can make decisions and talk to people and try out software and understand other people's opinions of it it really Mm -hmm. drove that direction of hey if you're not focusing on the user and solving their problems you're going to end up losing to your competition over time. So I think that that was really key is how do we build a better relationship with our end users? And that's what we do at 3M. We're really fortunate enough to have access to so many of our customers that want to be part of our process that I could mm-hmm. go out to a customer or even sometimes we go out to, we, we've got, I don't want to call them competitors directly because they might compete with us in one area but not in the other so maybe we'll just call them frenemies for now um even even (laughs) going out with them and working with them on how hey how can we interface better together how can we integrate our solutions together um for the users it's been really really good like i've never had this much access to my users to the point where i'm comfortable enough to just show up and sketch with them and say hey does this make sense and then a week or two later, I'm back with, you know, a lower fidelity wireframe. And then after that, we're mm-hmm. working with them remotely to validate solutions along the way. Like, it's been really amazing the amount of access to users that we have. Gotcha. So with that, how does one, trying to figure out the best way to phrase this. So a lot of times, you know, bosses and the like you said, the client isn't necessarily the right. end user. When when you have a client that is very set in the way that they want to do things, but it's not the best solution for the end user, how do you go about trying to convince them of this is what really what you need to do, not 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 okay. the other thing? So traditionally, before 3M, I would try to speak up a little bit, usually get shot down, ending up having to to create like one version that kind of matches what they want, a second version that's kind of what I think the users want, and then putting the two of them in front of users. So Mm -hmm. as designers, we, we really do start to understand our user, but we do realize that somebody else is responsible for some of the decisions early, especially early in our careers. So we've got to figure out a way to get the user to side with what we expect them to side with. So I don't want to say that we're we're making a different version look better, but we will put in front of them maybe what we're told to, and we know the reaction that it's going to get. So then we can mm-hmm. point out to that business team or that individual, hey, look, you know, this is the solution that you wanted. 
Thankfully, we tested it before it went live because the users aren't reacting well to it. The conversion rate is down on this. Card abandonment rate is down or just people don't like it. You know, they're telling us, hey, mm. I like the old way better or this doesn't meet my actual workflow. So by showing them kind of the gaps and, and one of the tools we have to do that today is journey mapping. So what we like to do is we'll go through with our stakeholders this customer journey, every touch point, and figure out what they think the emotions of the users will be. And then we'll go out and observe mm -hmm. the users and get their actual emotions of each step in that workflow. And then we'll come back to the business and say, look, this is what you thought. This is how it actually is. Now let's figure out a way to solve the problems in those gaps. And that's very, very sure. eye-opening. Now, luckily for us at 3M, we're not a service model agency or within the company. We're not listed. It's not designed right. as a service. So we're a strategic partner. Most of the time we have the ability to just step in and say, no, that's not going to work. We're going to go a different way. Like they have learned through our growth and maturity of design to treat us as the mm -hmm. experts. Design is actually like the expert that's here to help them solve the problem. Of course, we don't know the information that they know. We don't understand a lot of like for me in healthcare, the clinical data. I'm not a clinician, so I need to work very closely <laughs> with them. But they've learned to. But come on, you started in pre-nursing. I, I mean, I understand <laughs> some of the, the cl clinical stuff, but, you know, tr traditionally, like we're the designers and we can't sure. we can't <laughs> yeah. walk in and say, hey. We know everything there is to know about your business. We've got to say, we really need to work together. You understand the content more than anybody. Let us un trust us in how we're going to have that interface with the customer and how we're going to build the functionality sure. for the customer. And it's been really good. I mean, obviously, there's been some bumps in the road along the way. But at the end of the day, like if you can measure the results, then you can see the value that design adds. Mm-hmm. When 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 you're doing this, how are you putting yourself in the end user's shoes to kind of, you know, obviously there's lots of testing and back end and back and forth that goes on. But from, from the outset, how do you put yourself in the user's shoes to kind of brainstorm what the best model would be? So very early on when we first start to understand like business requirements, we go out and we sit with our our customers. So right now we're doing work for uh, clinical documentation improvement specialists, which are nurses that work with coders. So there are coders mm -hmm. and nurses that kind of when a patient is in the hospital, they start to um, go through all of the documentation to assign specific medical codes, uh, ICD codes and procedures to group them for insurance and then bill the customer. So the coder sure. is looking for billing and the nurse is looking for quality of care, anything that might not be mm. accurate in the clinician's notes. At the same time, there's also a quality team that's trying to understand, hey, let's make sure there aren't any potentially preventable complications or this patient's not a readmission. So there's a lot of things going on in the back end. So what we have to do is really immerse ourselves in their environment. We need to sit with them. We need to shadow them. We need to ask them questions while they're performing their job. Like, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Does it make sense? Can you think of an easier way to do that aside from what we observe? So designers and people that are able to do, and whether that's through formal training or just experience with doing research, are able to get 
the unarticulated needs from the user, which is really helpful. So businesses mm-hmm. are really good at understanding what pain points exist. They hear the complaints. They can get the articulated needs, sure. but it's someone that's really trained as a user researcher or design researcher to get those unarticulated needs that's when you start to sit there and have the conversation with the customer. Well, hey, what if you could do this at this point? What if, you know, your mm-hmm. screen is so busy? What if you only, what if only this information was presented to you at this point? Does that make sense? And from that interaction and spending time with them, that's when we really start to come up with a concept. And we'll sit down and, and we'll sketch it with them. Like, hey, let me sketch this real quick. What do you think about this? And they'd point out or cross something out and say, no, that doesn't make sense over there. And then we just kind of refine over time. But it's really spending time with them in their environment. That's the only way we can really get empathy for them. And it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things I'm working on now is a talk that's really dedicated towards design and healthcare. In healthcare, they talk about nurses or clinicians not being able to have empathy for the users because they're they can't take on that pain, that direct pain that like designers always talk about empathy, but for clinicians, it's more about compassion and sympathy as opposed to empathy. So it's, it's this fine balance that as designers, we're kind of like, Oh, you know, those words almost mean the same thing, but really they don't as designers. We can take on the, the user frustration of using something, but clinicians are more like they're dealing with patients that have like, severe sometimes life or death or somebody might be dying and that's very that takes such an emotional toll on somebody that you can't sure yeah it's it's hard enough if you don't distance your it's it's hard enough if you distance right. yourself but if you're not if you're putting empathy into every single patient you're gonna yeah you know i, I think that's probably why they're in healthcare fields there's probably why there's such a high suicide right. rate exactly too. so that's it's for designers it's definitely about empathy for our users through their through their sure. tasks not through their you know their whole experience yes i've never wanted to i've never wanted to kill myself working <laughs> on a project I've wanted to kill other yeah. people but not myself <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so you know with with building that empathy you know what what are some of the tools that you use to to do that um, definitely a lot of just FaceTime, right? I mean, that's number one is, is to building a relationship is spending time with somebody. Uh, aside from sure. that, we do empathy maps. So we try to understand what, what so what is an so empathy we, map? we take, we don't take a picture of a person, but we draw, um, a picture of a person or something. And we try to understand these quadrants of like, what do they think? What do they feel? What do they fear Mm -hmm. and what do they hear? So it's trying to understand from their perspective. A lot of what we do is computer-assisted coding. So in the beginning, when you've got this natural language processing engine telling them what codes are Mm -hmm. found in the documents, they don't trust it. They think, wow, this, this machine's goal is to take my job. And it's like, no, it's not. This machine's job is to kind of streamline a little bit of your work so that you could take your expertise to really prioritize what's done as opposed to just having to read through the whole document for no reason. And Mm -hmm. that was one of the things that we really experienced that they felt. And some of them heard it from talking to each other like, hey, you know, we're probably going to cut the department by 10% because the machine could do some of our work. And that's not 
what we wanted to hear and and that's not our intention mm-hmm. at the time either so it was really good to understand that and what are they seeing what do they see in the industry what are the trends that are coming up are they hearing about any other software that might be easier to use and why and it's that that's mm-hmm. been our most important tool for for gaining empathy is really understanding all of their emotions gotcha so since, since you, how long have you been at 3M now? It sounds like it's about a year and a half. Two and a half two years. years. Yeah. Two and a half years. Okay. So through that time there, what, what are some of the things that you have learned that you know you, you you had no idea of aside from you know obviously the technical you know all about healthcare and things like that, but like as far as tools designers use and things like that. What are some of the things that you've learned in your time at it? So I think the most valuable lesson that I learned is to bring my own seat to the table. So in the beginning at 3M, there were a lot of like relationships that were built over time. So there were little pockets of groups within 3M that were doing design work that weren't necessarily designers. And through these relationships, people maybe didn't want to work with design or didn't want design mm-hmm. to kind of just jump in and take over a project, which is an opinion that they had early on of the design team because they'd come in and, and do these workshops and understand problems. And then all of a sudden the scope of the project may have changed or the solution offering may have <laughs> changed, which really is is us taking the designer's lens and applying design thinking to it and making it improving upon the solution it's not like what they were doing was wrong it's just we've got a different perspective on it so sure in the beginning like there were meetings that i just wasn't invited to so i would just show up my boss is very big on hey just show up you know when you do that you've got to learn not to just speak out of turn and just interject at any reason it's really to be there and listen and then when the right opportunity shows itself that's when you show Hey, this guy really knows what he's talking about. You know, let's listen to him. This mm-hmm. this design thing sounds like it might be really helpful. So I learned that and I also learned very much show and don't tell. So people have been at 3M for 30 years. When you're at 3M a year and a half, sometimes they get mm-hmm. an email and they're like, "Who is that? I don't know this person. I'm not going to really respond sure. right away." So it's difficult as a designer to continue to move things forward if you're not getting the answers to the questions that you have. So sometimes you've got to just put something (laughs) together and use it as a talking point. So it's easier to start to sketch something out or wireframe something that you think is right, even if it's way off, because when the business team sees that, they're more likely to say, hey, wait a minute, I understand kind of what you're thinking here. This isn't right. This Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense here. But what you've got there is really good. Like, let's figure out how to expand on that. So it's, it's been a lot of like, I guess they'd be soft skills, but really they're just ways to like drive design within the organization and grow the maturity of design. I mean, we're super empowered with getting tools and um, having our upper level management handle a lot of politics if they happen to arise, which luckily they don't very often. But, but, um, (laughs) That's good in a company of that yeah. size. I mean, you, you're well over 10,000. Yeah, 10,000 here, 90,000 globally. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it exists, but luckily. Well, yeah, it's an office. There's always right, office politics exactly. somewhere. Luckily, I, I'm not subject to a lot of it, especially now that I've got a small team. But 
Sure. It, it's been a lot of those skills. I mean, aside from that, we do a ton of remote user testing. And because now I've been this remote team, we're in the design center in St. Paul. But my business teams are in Salt Lake City, Silver Spring, Maryland, Austin, Texas, Troy, New York, Atlanta, Georgia, Wallingford, mm. Connecticut. So it doesn't make sense for me to go to all of these places or get everybody to travel to one location. So we're starting to use a lot of remote like workshop tools like Mural. And um, mm-hmm. that's been kind of interesting and, and a bit of a challenge at first, but we're really starting to get the hang of it. We do a lot of remote user testing. Uh, we were using user zoom and, and validately for that. So it's, it's tools that are making us more efficient to work remotely even though we technically sure. work out of the office. So it's uh, it's been a lot of learning of that. And then just the different... So at the 3M Design Center, we really have this true like um, diverse design team. And we've got package designers and industrial designers and UX designers mm-hmm. and graphic designers and operational... Not designers, but they work in operations with the printers and the people that build post-it notes and then there's the digital aspect and even our ux team is made up of you know researchers strategists information architects interaction designers visual designers front-end developers Mm -hmm. so it's really just having this many people with all the different tools that they bring to the table so every day there's a new tool on the table that somebody's trying to show us or we get to play with but realistically it's it's been how we improve design to to tell a story and end up maturing within the organization. Sure. So we're, we're kind of getting close to our time, but I want to wrap up and, and ask you with, with building that. And, you know, you, you mentioned soft skills with leading a team and having so many people be remote. Um, and I realize you know, most of that is on your the business side of the team. What, what, what are the challenges that come with that for, for you? So schedule, <laughs> scheduling is tough. Scheduling. Because of <laughs> time exactly. zones are hard. <laughs> um, but really like helping my team grow to provide more value to the business. So I'm doing a lot of mentoring and the, and the best way for me to do that is to really understand my team and their needs. So it's important sure. for anybody that manages people to understand what motivates those people. Everybody has a different reason for being here. Some of them on my team, they might be here to use 3M as a stepping stone. Nobody's admitted that mm-hmm. to me. Um, but I hope that our, my relationship with them is is strong enough and transparent enough that they would. But you know yeah, who you exactly. are. Exactly. <laughs> if, if they were and wanted to, then I would give them projects that would help them shine while helping us shine so that everybody could learn. Sure. If there's somebody on our team that has a, you know, a family at home that they like to spend a lot of time with and work-life balance is key for them. What I want to make sure is that they don't have that 10 p.m. call or 5 a.m. call with our team overseas. You know, I'll I'll handle that or someone else will handle that. And if somebody wants to grind mm-hmm. and work it out and work around the clock and crank things out and wants six projects instead of four, then I'll figure <laughs> out a way to like support that a little bit, but I don't want anybody to be here around the clock, right? I'll I'll give you a little extra work. I'll help you like push a little bit harder. But at the end of the day, like it's important to not be here all the time. It's important to have some sort of balance. You need to recharge. So it's really about understanding the team dynamic and, and growing this culture 
of anybody that can can travel often, work remote, work here, collaborate, go out, spend time with customers. My team is really much built on cultural fit. I mean, the talent is there also. The talent is obviously the key piece to the puzzle, but it's much more than talent. It's about personality and culture fit and opportunity for growth and the potential that you see. You know, mm-hmm. we'll get a resume and a portfolio really early on. And we've got my boss usually will go through those like portfolio phone calls, or walk me through your work and we'll do a portfolio review. But by the time they get to to me, I'm not concerned with that. I know that they're capable of doing the work. I want to see how they are with people and how they interact with our business. Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um. So so real quickly, since we're wrapping up, where where can people find oh, you? So online? I I actually put up a website now. It doesn't have any of my hey, <laughs> any of my work. You're better than me. <laughs> I was like, oh, how do I do this? I think I really did it just to one day get verified on Twitter. But um, it's. AndyVitale.com. It's just got a list of upcoming speaking appearances and list of articles that I've written or were published. And then I'm on Twitter at Andy Vitale all the time. I haven't been tweeting as much lately because I've been working on that website. But uh, I'll I'll start tweeting (laughs) a lot more starting this week and uh, LinkedIn also. So Awesome. And we'll we'll post links to all this stuff in the show notes so people can find you. Sounds good. Yeah, so we end every podcast by saying go out and hug some necks, which is a way of um, saying, you know, go out, make friends, don't be a stranger, you know, um, that sort of thing. Would you mind taking us out by saying that? So uh, go out and hug some necks. Perfect. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, no problem, Jason. Thank you. You can find out more about Andy on Twitter at Andy Vitale. And be sure to check out the links in the show notes for more ways to keep up with him. You can keep up with the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Creative SO Pod and follow Creative South on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creative South GA over at CreativeSouth.com. And I'm at Jay Frostholm on Dribble, Twitter, and Instagram. Visit JackPrince.com and get 20% off orders over $25 when you use promo code CreateSouth17 at checkout. For a limited time, new Skillshare customers can get their first three months for just 99 cents to get unlimited access to thousands of classes when you sign up at Skillshare.com using promo code CREATIVESOUTH. What are you waiting for? Start learning today. And remember, if you like the show, help support us over at Patreon.com slash CREATIVESOUTH. And if you like the Creative South podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. Rate us and leave a review. This helps more people find the podcast and allows us to keep getting awesome guests. Now go out and hug some necks.